0: Hey everybody, today in the Multiply Podcast we're talking leadership with Tom Chiz, CEO and founder of Armored One. Check it out. Hey everybody, welcome to the Multiply Podcast. My name is Jared. My name is David. Good to be back.
1: Yep, so it's February 8th. Uh, we're pre-recording this. Last night
0: was the Super Bowl. So let's just start with this. Jared. Who won I'm, the Super Bowl last it's, night? It's exciting that my boy Tom Brady got another win. He further solidified his GOAT status. Even though he's not a Patriot anymore, it still feels like a Patriot victory. Because Does it, though? It really does. I mean, they've got two of the greatest Patriots on their
1: team. Do you think so. this, uh, if he wins, do you think it speaks to the sort of ongoing debate
0: of Brady versus Belichick? Uh, I'm sure people will, will say that. It speaks more to the greatness of Brady than does it undermine the greatness of Belichick,
1: I think. And what happens when Mahomes leads Kansas City to a 17-point win? <laughs> <laughs> um, forget all this. We'll, we'll edit this out. <laughs> I'll have to rerecord this. Well, I hope it's a fun game, number one. Number 2, I hope Brady doesn't win because I just, you know, being someone who's rooted against the Patriots and Brady for so long. Oh, come on. I can't
0: I can't handle He's that. He's in Tampa now. He's living a different lifestyle, a Florida guy. I mean, don't don't hate on him anymore. I'm not
1: hating on him. I just don't want him to win. And I like Mahomes. And I used to be an Eagles fan, so I have a soft spot for Spot for Andy Reid. Funny story about Andy Reid. He would well, – I was a really big Eagles fan for a while, mostly because of McNabb, to the point where I would watch, like, the Monday morning press conferences. Uh, and uh, Aaron would always hear me listening to these press conferences. And Andy Reid's a big dude, of course. And he's one of the heaviest breathers you've ever heard. <laughs> he is. And she would. She didn't know his name. She just would always call him heavy breather. <laughs>
0: oh that's a great nickname i hope
1: heavy breather gets the second ring but hope you guys who are listening enjoyed the game hope you had a safe gathering whatever that was like what's your go-to um super bowl snack jared
0: okay so this is it right here it's a jalapeno popper dip that my wife makes what are you dipping into it your finger well it's a it's a dip for like chips okay but it's it it's if you love jalapeno poppers, it's got like the taste of jalapeno poppers. So it's like a cheesy dip. I do. But it's got the spice of and the kind of uh, Mm -hmm. the cream cheese of a jalapeno popper. It's Mm -hmm. it's my favorite thing. So dairy and spice. How do you do the next morning? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll get into that in the
1: next podcast. But well, we are excited to have um, really a great guest with us today. This is a guy who I grew up around. Good friend of mine. We've walked with each other through a lot of different seasons of life. And I I consider him a brother in many ways. And um, he is, uh, well, we'll, we'll kind of let him introduce himself a little bit here. But uh, Tom Chiz is a great leader. He is the co founder of a wonderful company. He has a history of serving our community in law enforcement. He's a dad of six. Um, and uh, we're really excited that he's going to be here on this episode and the next episode to tell us a little bit about the story of his company and also uh, what he's learned about being a leader who sees needs and responds to needs and creates solutions around the challenges in uh, in society. And so, Tom, hey, thanks so much for being on the Multiply podcast.
2: Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Jared. Appreciate it. Great to be on.
1: Tom, tell us a little bit about your story. Um, obviously, I know it. our listeners, some of our listeners probably know you. Your dad is a pastor right here in this community at a really great church called Word of Life in Baldwinsville, and and he's always been uh, so kind and generous to me as a pastor in the community. Um, but uh, I I know some of your story, and um, but just tell us a little bit about kind of what you've experienced in life, in work, and in life that has prepared you, you think, for this season of leadership that you're in.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, love your family too, Dave, and you you definitely have been like a brother. Uh, for the listener listeners that don't know. I lost my brother. You two were the same age, and lost my brother five years ago to a heart attack. And uh, you also lost your, mm-hmm. your little brother. And you know, sadly, things that tie us together. But you and I have been friends pretty much our whole lives. Mm-hmm. Our dads being preachers and being pastors' kids, and the great and terrible uh, being raised as pastors' kids. The, <laughs> it's a balance of two. But uh, started in started in Syracuse, New York, or Phoenix, with my dad being a youth pastor, and then in '87. Uh, when I was about eight or nine. We moved down to West Point, New York, where he was a chaplain on a military base. And we did that for almost five years just outside New York City. So quite the transition from um, a little tiny town, Phoenix, New York, that no one's ever heard of to uh, New York City. And growing up there, too, was pretty great. My dad being a chaplain, we would be able to meet generals, we'd be able to meet presidents of the United States and vice presidents. And uh, it was really a crazy transition for our lives, but getting to see leadership at its at its best.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, you know, the United States Military Academy has brought presidents of the United States through incredible leaders through there. And, you know, sitting down at dinner with them or starting to see how they how they treat people, how they act really was a basis for me and where it made me want to be either in the military or in police work. And we ended up moving back to baldensville New York, where where dad became pastor of Word of Life Assembly of God, and stayed great friends with your your father until his passing. they were, they were close friends and in close neighbors and churches too. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you got to continue to see that that type of leadership too at at a church. Um, churches are kind of businesses where where their boss is God. So, <laughs> but they still they still do. I mean, you guys are running you're running a business yeah. and you're running a ministry at the same time. And if anything, it's harder than running a business because you're not looking for profits and dollars. But if you don't have any money, you got to close the doors. Right. So you've got to be able to balance the two of, of being a ministry and not for profit and also being a business. Um, and I learned a lot from my father and my mother and, and then their close friends like your dad. Where being humble as a leader is really what, what makes you successful. There, there is no, you know, there's icons in business out there that we see at Amazon, uh, Dan Cathy at Chick-fil-A, and these people are icons for what they do. But when you start to see that they have to rely on other people to make their businesses successful, that's where we, being humble like a pastor and like a leader really gets you to where you need to be
1: yeah it's amazing to just I, I mean I knew that you guys were at West Point I don't think I knew all the details that you just shared but' it's, in a way your leadership development probably began before you even were aware it was happening um, oh, absolutely and and how formative how formative that's been for you um, then when I when you and I really started to kind of reconnect later in life you were serving in the community um, in, uh, and so talk a little bit about your experience serving, uh, as a police officer, I believe you, you ended up becoming a homicide detective and, and operating a SWAT team. And just speak a little bit to your experience there and some of the ways it shaped uh, even who you are today as a leader.
2: Definitely. So I, at uh, 21, I was able to join the police academy. Thank God they were on a huge hiring because I'm not that smart, didn't do great on my civil service test. But uh, good enough, and you know me well enough, Dave, too, on that line. So I did good enough that I was able to be brought on, and I was hired by two agencies at the same time, uh, the Sheriff's Department in Onondaga County plus uh, Baldensville Police, which was a small department at the time, 15, 15 uh, full-time police officers. And I chose at the time to go with Baldensville Police. It was the community I was raised in. My dad's a pastor in. I was very familiar with it. Uh, and there was better pay, and I already had uh, two children by then. So... I needed the health benefits immediately and I chose them and thank God too, he had a plan for me because starting at a smaller department, there's a lot more training. So I started there and I was able to go off and travel and do a lot of different training, um, specified trainings for things like active shooter, uh, dare teaching in schools. And a lot of you remember the dare programs, but I was able to start my career there and then switched over to the sheriff's department, a much larger department, about 900 people there And uh, my goals when I set off to leave and go to the sheriff's, my goals were to get on SWAT. My goals were to become a detective, uh, really to get into homicide detective. And I was able to accomplish those within a few years, which uh, took a lot of work, a lot of determination. Even on the SWAT team, I was a little old at the time. Um, You know, the guys are typically younger in their mid 20s, more fit and going through SWAT school and all that is not easy at all, especially in your 30s. So I was able to accomplish my goals and get on these teams, and I spent seven years on SWAT, seven years in in uh, homicide, major crimes, with an incredible team of people. Actually, seven seven detectives in in major crimes that mm. really change changes your perspective one on uh, your own life, and then other people's lives too. Because it's not you know everyone thinks of law and order, dunk, dunk. It, It's <laughs> not it's not a it's not you're just walking from homicide to homicide and shooting everyone in the in the way.
1: No commercial um, breaks.
2: No, I wish. <laughs> you know, that some of these, some of these homicides are 70 hours in with not even a nap yet. And uh, you're like, God, I wish I wish there was a, a part two of this episode so we could go home and take a nap. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they you learn to you, to work hard, work long hours, work together with people rely, you know, you're relying on evidence text, you're relying on uh, people doing autopsies and, and getting you all this information. Again, uh, it's beginning to associate what you do in life to to being in a business leader and a, a business owner is taking those experiences and then relate them to what you're doing in business and you know being in homicide you 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 would get people dead every single day multiple people from suicides to an unnatural death even something like my brother at 40. Mm-hmm. he's not supposed to be dead at 40 a doctor's not going to sign off unless he knows they have pre-existing issues. so police have to come in and investigate to make sure someone, Uh, didn't murder him poison him you know so we have to come in and treat things like they're a homicide and it's very difficult to find that balance and you've been there yourself too with your brother Mm -hmm. it's a delicate scene at that point with the family of a tragic loss and you have to you have to find that way of dealing with the family respect them but show them that you care and you're there for a reason just in case you know so it it was a really good eye-opener for me uh, on the police side and and, you know, drastically things changing after my, my brother died, the way that I treated people on homicides, the way that uh, because you begin to get cold. You know, nurses, doctors, police, you, you tend to be around death so much that the way to protect your, your mental health, uh, you don't even realize you're doing it, is to to shut down and, and lose empathy towards because it, it drains you. And hmm. uh, you know this. I mean, I, I always say that, that pastors have the hardest in PTSD in life that they constantly not only have to deal with that tragedy, but they stay with that family sometimes for a month, sometimes for the next 30 years. And as police, it's, it's a week. Sometimes it's two weeks. I've been retired now, uh, three years. And, um, there's families I'm still in touch with that from homicides that I, I got close on, but a majority of them, I never saw again where pastors and and ministers they are constantly there. So shutting down that body and that empathy, I, I lost, you know, sad, I am ashamed of some of the ways that I handle calls for people and <clears throat> didn't show empathy, didn't show any love of God to them because you just got shut down and, and losing my brother started to open that up again for yeah. me of how I treated people, how I wanted them to be treated by other cops to to make sure because it, it is typically the worst day of your life when, when they're showing up there.
0: Yeah. Tom, I, I want to start by saying that, um, you and, and all the men and women who serve are, are really my heroes. My father-in-law is a retired police sergeant, career career police sergeant in New Jersey, and um, I think you're you're explaining well, giving some insight to those of us who have never walked in in your guys' shoes as to the kind of stuff that you encounter and the leadership situations, the things that you see. I mean, you see stuff every day that would be the worst day for the average person, and so I'm interested. Um, I love I love you sharing kind of about the empathy piece and. And um, it sounds like uh, God using a tragedy in your life to equip you and help you to serve and become a better leader. Um, Before we transition into some of your your transition into business, I'd love to hear, is there any kind of like key leadership um, moments or traits or things that you saw during your time in the police force, in the SWAT that you've really carried over into the rest of your life and into your business life as well?
2: Yeah, definitely. There's two of them that I'll I'll give examples and I'll start with the bad one first. Uh, Police is is paramilitary. And thanks, Jared, first for, you know, thanking me, praising me. We really are losing that as a society right now uh, with people. You know, a case that you guys would know there in central New York is, as you know, I'm down in South Carolina now running an expansion of the business. But the David Wrens case was one of my one of my big cases, and just getting on to homicide, um, the state police and, and us worked together on this case, and I was with him five days in a row in jail for interrogations, interviews, things like that. And uh, having to deal with something where a guy uh, rapes a little girl and kills the mother in front of her, you know, this, this becomes an everyday process for people, and then to be hated by the public when you're still willing to go lay down your life like your father-in-law um, it becomes disheartening to these guys, these men and women. So mm-hmm. I think it's great that, that you guys aren't hesitating to say, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you do. Cause society's trying to push it down that, that cops are not heroes. And they really are. And I'm not praising myself, but what I'm saying is I've worked with so many men and women that were willing to lay down their lives. I had friends that died in the line of duty and to them it was, they were doing what they were called to do. You know, it, to yeah. me, the non-Christian, uh, police officers don't realize that they, that is their ministry. That is what God has called them to do. And they can't understand why they're, they're so passionate about doing that. And they're willing to do like soldiers too. They're willing to lay down their lives for their brothers and their sisters, and then people that they don't even know. So it is, it is, it is an honor that I got to work with, with such incredible men and women. I got to learn from them. There's a, a tons of great things and I'll, I'll hit one of the great ones and, and one of the bad ones. So the, The first bad one is being paramilitary, um, which means that there's rank and order. So my sergeant, my, you know, captain, my chief, these people then, when they get into their point of powers, they can be a humble, good leader, you know, that you can be firm and have your boundaries and still be humble and love on your people. Um, And they will know when they make a mistake, I'm going to get disciplined. I had a Chief Botsford who was a phenomenal guy, Chief of Patrol, that if I made a mistake, man, that guy was coming down on me hard but he did it because he loved me, he cared about me. He didn't want me to die. He didn't want me to get injured. He wanted me to protect the people I'm working with. And I would get my redirect from him at that moment. And it would be painful, but he would respect you if you honored him through it and you did what you were supposed to. And there were other, there were other uh, bosses there, captains or sergeants or lieutenants, who would say, you're doing this because I'm a captain. You're doing this. You know They would just demand what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And they would work in fear too of... If you don't do this, or you don't do it right, or you don't you don't fix this, you're back on patrol. You're working midnights. You're going down, and you're working uh, in Tully, New York, for the next three years, and you're you know you're going to try to stay awake on midnights down there because <laughs> nothing's happening. You're going to watch cows move. So they would make threats like this, and there there would be no effective change in people. You know, some people would work out of fear, but think about it. Even when you guys were off at college, you, you didn't have your your. Uh, professor standing over you threatening that I'm going to kick you out of college. You're, you're in that class because you want to be in that class, because you want to perform, because you want to graduate, you want to become a pastor. And for Dave, um, so you know what I mean? It's not, I'm going to threaten you. You know what the consequence is. So standing there and making those threats and trying to rule out of fear just never works. So that was one of the big things I took away of. I'm not going to be a CEO who's sitting in an office and saying, well, you're fired. You're going to be a janitor. You're going to be doing this. You're going to be cleaning up the back of the building for the next month because because if not, then you don't understand your job. You need to be scared of what the consequences are. That was terrible leadership, and you, you would see that constantly in law enforcement where I'm a sergeant, you're going to do this because I'm a sergeant. Well, you need to explain to your team if they might be dying doing something Explain to them why we are doing this and what's going on. Not just I'm your sergeant, do what I said. So I never, never appreciated that, never liked that. And um, the biggest thing that I learned was it was when I got on the SWAT team. My SWAT team leaders, my SWAT commander, these were men that uh, would not only lead by telling you what to do, they would lead by doing it with you. Hmm. They would, if we were running six miles in full gear and then you know, six mile run, and then we're going to hit the range right after and begin shooting. These guys were doing it with us too. And then they would be the best shot when we got there. They would be leading the team as they run. And also they would push for team unity constantly. And um, I think some businesses, you know, they hit that $10 million mark and they become stagnant and they don't have any more growth because they can't wrap their head around team. And, And like I was saying at the beginning, it's no one person that can, that can build a business, a billion-dollar company. Uh, build the Amazon. Jeff Bezos did not build that alone. He, you know, if you've read his books and followed him, he's kind of a jerk, but he he is a determined leader that brings on people that are great. And if they're not great, they don't come onto the company. But you can't you can't do that without people, and you can't do that without coming together as a team and saying, okay. We handled Central New York as a company. Now we're doing all of New York. Now we're doing the tri-state, and now we're getting into a national. Right now, currently, our company is getting into a, a global worldwide company between the U.K. and Australia and looking for expansion. And if you think it's because Tom Chiz is the leader of Armored One, no way, man. I mean, no way, not at all. So I learned that if you really don't pull people together as a team, make, make them feel that they are making a difference as a team and launch towards that mission. Then you're never going to accomplish
1: anything that's so good tom I appreciate you sharing that i think um to, to your first example which was the negative example of people leading just out of position but not out of relationship or respect um we did um just for our listeners we did a couple episodes it's a way it's a ways back i just looked it up real quick november of 2018 we did a two-parter on the self-aware leader and during that episode, we talked about um, two guys years ago, John French and Bertram Raven. This was like back in the late 50s. They came up with this whole thought of the five bases of power, which is basically everybody shows up in a room with power, but where does that power come from? And the top three ones that they talk about are legitimate power, which is based on your title. That's positional. That's, that would be um, whoever's over you based on organizational structure. But then there's also expert power. Do they actually know what they're talking about? And the, then the one that they talk about that I think is most interesting is referent power, which is the perception that they display behavior that actually earns respect. So you've been in meetings, mm-hmm. Tom, I'm sure, where somebody's in the room and they don't have the position, but everybody respects them the most. Um, yep. And so as a leader, when you can bring those three together, that you are the CEO of a company and you do know what you're talking about and people respect you and actually want to be like you, that kind of becomes a sweet spot of leadership. But especially especially with millennials and Gen Z working for you guys, they more than any generation see past position, right? And title yep. and they care about who are you and, and how do you treat them and and so that's that's such an important lesson. And if our listeners wanna dive into that more, go back, find the self aware podcast episodes and listen. And then the team building thing is something we talk about a lot and creating a vision to move even beyond where you are to sort of fall in love with the problem that you exist to address and not fall in love with the solutions you've created along the way. As soon as you fall in love with solutions, you get stuck, right? Absolutely. Um, so I want to transition. We got we got a little time left. I want to transition to talk about the company that you lead now. And then our next episode, we'll really dive into your company, Um but, you know, and what I respect about Armored One, and for those who want to know more about it, their website is armored armoredone.com, and the word armored is spelled more like in the English way, actually, than in the American way, A-R-M-O-U-R-E-D-1.com. Um, this was a response, this was a solution to a problem that haunted you. Something happened in, I think it was 2012. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, definitely. So. You know, starting my career as a, a police officer, I, I dove right into becoming a dare instructor. As, as I told you guys, I already had, I adopted my oldest son, got married, and, and my ex wife had uh, a child already and adopted Bailey, my oldest, uh, who's now just getting out of the Army at 24. Crazy to me. <laughs> and You're old. Um, I know, feels it. <laughs> and he, uh, you know, I adopted him and then had Noah, my second child. And, was launched into the police academy as no I was a newborn and a very passionate about being a father you know the the man i respect most of my life is my dad um he he's my hero i i love my father i respect my father you talk about a genuine person who exactly what he's been on the pulpit preaching thousands of times he is that man hmm. um in our house in our lives he, he's just he's a true man of god a true man's man fixes cars rides motorcycles power lifts he's You know, My dad has been my hero my whole life, and wanting to honor that, I wanted to be a good dad. I wanted to protect my kids, and I I made a promise um, to all my children, even the ones I've adopted, three of the six um, remarried, and my wife has two, and I've adopted them, and I promised them, even at those moments, that I'm going to protect them. I'm going to do everything I can as your father to protect you. Well, if you haven't had kids yet or you've had kids and even young ones, you're going to realize that you can't. Dave, you guys have fought through... Um, you know, hardships with medical and health problems with, with your youngest, that's yeah. out of your control as a dad. You know, you, I know for a fact, I, I know you well enough, you would take that from your daughter in a minute. You mm-hmm. would, if, if you could do anything or change anything, you would take that right now, but we can't, you know, it's out of our control. And I realized that too, as, as being a police officer, I, I got into Darren to try to make a difference and help protect people, uh, especially the children, always a drawing to protect kids. And as I grew in my career, I I started working in the active shooter realm. And Columbine was a a very big impact on me right before becoming a cop. And one of our friends, Dave, uh, Pastor Brian Hyma, who passed away from cancer, was a very good friend of mine, a very good mentor of mine. And he started a uh, not-for-profit after being a pastor because of the Columbine shooting called Real Teens, where he went out and he was effectively helping kids that were suicidal because suicide and homicide were so close That impacted me. I got in. I started pushing into active shooter. Lieutenant Dave Grossman. If you guys are into reading books, he's written quite a few books. Incredible Christian guy. He was a retired lieutenant colonel. He speaks on PTSD. And Lieutenant Colonel Grossman also is the nation's leading expert in active shooter. Uh, God lined things up in the middle of my uh, beginning of my career. Sorry that I got to see him, and fell in love with protecting people from active shooter, because it really lined up with me being the dad and saying, I want to protect my kids. And I can't. So, you know, they're off to school and I pray to God that they come home. I pray to God, you know, as a police officer, I saw 9-11 happen and I was working that day during that time and realizing things are so out of control. I can't I wouldn't be able to protect my family if they were there. So I started to try to reel in that control by learning as much as I can, going to as many classes, becoming a subject matter expert in active shooter. What happens during these shootings? Why are they doing it? Understanding the psyche behind it, what happens during it. And what really was happening in my life was God was lining me up uh, for the perfect mission, which was Armored One for me. And um, getting on to SWAT, and we're the ones that come in. And or, you, SWAT is almost like the hero to heroes. You know, if things are really bad for police, they call on that one percent, which is the SWAT team who trains in that, you know, with special forces. They have Navy SEALs and Delta Force who teach them how to respond to these to be better shots, better equipped tactically. And I was lined up with everything perfectly um, on the tragic day of December 14th, 2012. Hmm. Um, I know that if anyone is a dad at all or of an adult age, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It was Sandy Hook um that we saw happen uh 20 something year old and dave knows this already but i won't say the shooters names 20 year old goes into an elementary school elementary is kindergarten through fifth grade typically he goes in with an ar-15 a handgun and within two and a half minutes he's able to kill uh 20 first graders and six adults to me that was a life-changing moment um i just my jaw was on the floor i could not believe i always tried to i think we do this as humans though tried to justify why a high school shooting would happen that kid must have been bullied terrible he wanted to kill himself he wanted he really wanted to date that girl and she the boy stole him so he killed those two before he killed himself we've always tried to justify the actions of the shooter to somehow protect us and keep us safe and or to keep our family safe or whatever we're looking to protect in our mind and there was no explaining how you can kill 21st graders in two and a half minutes other than it's pure evil. And the thing is there's non-believers and there's believers that we talk to as a company working across the nation. And I tell them it's pure evil and some of them roll their eyes and you can tell the Christian people are nodding their heads and in 100% agreement, you know, the devil's out to destroy, to kill, especially a nation that stands for God, like, like America. And, he's out there to attack. And what, what killed me that night, Dave was, and Jared was the phone call I received from my friend. So I was teaching uh, active shooter response and I had a buddy who was a retired Connecticut state trooper, just recently retired, same SWAT guy, active shooter, subject matter expert. And he would be out teaching people actually police departments, how to respond to active shooter like I was. So our job would be to go into, um, clay police that used to be across the street from you dave and teach them if there's an active shooter how do you respond to this here's the SWAT guy teaching you how to go in and stop the active shooter and uh this guy's name is also tom tom calls me uh later that night and is crying and this guy's in his 50s i've never seen the guy cry he's got some battle stories i mean that you talk about and i can tell he's it's hard for him to talk there's pauses I said, Tom, what's up? And he's retired. So my brain's not going at, you know, I know he would be upset about, about Sandy Hook. He's a Connecticut state trooper. Ends up. He was the number two guy that showed up there. Wow. He, he was running security for a school that I can't mention, but because he's still there, but he's running security. He, his kids are home from college and he took the day off and he went down to Starbucks down the street, right next to Sandy Hook elementary. And he's getting coffee for his kids uh planning on going home and waking them up with pastries and coffees from starbucks which i i would love it if my dad did that and <laughs> he's standing there and the and the chief of police for uh the sandy hook comes in and they're talking and they hear a lockdown call at the school so they're not saying there's an active shooter they're not saying there's a guy with a gun at this point the school's in lockdown which happens very frequently and the chief looks at, at Tom and says, come on, let's go. I'll show you what, you know, you're doing this now at school X. Come with me. Let's see how they're doing it at Sandy Hunt. This is where your kids went to school. So Tom follows the chief, jumps in the car and follows the chief. He's lights and sirens. A couple minutes away, within two and a half minutes, they're there. And the chief is getting updates in the car and Tom doesn't know it. He's getting updates on the radio that there there's people dead, that there's a shooter. He's got a gun. It sounds like he's got a rifle. So the chief stops hands tom a vest and a gun and says i need you to cover the door and come with me because there's only now three of them there they go in and by the time that they're in the shooter has already committed suicide um so tom holds his post until they get enough people there and is a part of you know 26 people dead in two and a half minutes like the nightmare of i guess you could say guys in our position that train for this that are ready for it Uh, we pray to God if it ever happens, you know, that if I'm at Home Depot, God, and you want this to happen, I'm trained and equipped and ready to go. Um, I can fight back and stop this active shooter before he can hurt anyone. That was all taken away from Tom because he got there and it's over. Mm. As fast as he could get there, all the training this guy had, the damage he could do and has done in his career, and he can do nothing because it's over. The man was destroyed. Only to find out, too, that the shooter was his son's classmate and his son's science lab mate. Uh, You know, this, this guy was just absolutely destroyed and talking to me. And of course it destroyed my life, Uh, but in a good way, It, it humbled me because I really thought, again, I was making a difference. I could help my kids. I could help your kids, Dave. And you know, all of my friends, I'm, I'm making a difference by teaching these police departments, but the truth is doesn't matter how fast they get there. The shooter's still doing bad. So God, I'm telling you, it was a God thing at that moment, uh, told me, you've got to do something. It's time to step up. It's time to start a business. It is time to protect the kids for real. And this is how you're going to do it. You've got to train the people that are there how to respond, what to do, and how to survive the eight minutes of those attacks. Whether you're at a temple, whether you're at a church, uh, a doctor's office, a school, a grocery store, someone is shooting. How can they survive? You know the methodology. You know what happens. You know what you would do. Why are you not teaching this to the people that are there? You're not only going to teach them, uh, you're going to do security assessments. So the failures at the Capitol building that we saw in, in January, where they're breaking through the glass or breaking through doors. How do we harden those and slow down the attackers coming to a place? How do we get them? Well, we have experts. I've worked with experts in those fields. So putting those people in place. And then the last piece was, is I knew, I knew of hardening glass in different ways for bomb resistance. Uh, Through some of my SWAT training, through my brother in law being in Iraq, uh, fighting in the war. And this shooter out we saw in Sandy Hook shot one round through a side light window and walked into the school, literally a one second delay because the glass was a false sense of security. And he walked right in and he was able to kill 26. To me, how do we slow him down so the police can get there and stop him? Shoot him, arrest him. Whatever it is, but how do we keep them outside the building to protect those little kids inside? Um, that's what the game changer was for us that night.
0: Wow, what a story! Um, first of all, thanks, Tom, for sharing that, and um, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you and your and of course your your buddy there. And um, it 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 puts so much in perspective. And one of the things as you were sharing that has really stuck out to me about your story is how um, how you. These tragedies in your life, um, God has used and you have used and taken them to um, understand kind of the direction that he's placed you in and the, the opportunities to take tragedy and lead out of them and do things that matter for people and that change lives and help people. and. Um, I think that's so much of what leadership is. And so we're going to, um, we're out of time on this episode, but on our next episode, we're actually going to come back. We're going to continue to hear Tom's story and dive a little deeper, specifically into his company, Armored One. And how does he create culture? What are some of the things that he's implemented into his company and business that allow it to be successful in a business that meets the needs of the people he's serving? And so. Uh, we're excited. Uh, if you enjoyed this, come back for the next episode. It's going to be awesome. Before we go, though, Tom, one of the things you know David well, and, and I think your greatest accolade, honestly, is befriending David for so many years because I know that that's no <laughs> it takes easy true task. Bravery. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, the SWAT team, it's like, yeah, that's good. That's brave. But befriending David is a, is a true, true test. So, <laughs> But one of the things we all know about David, we do a portion here called David's Eats where we try to make not not just better leaders but also better eaters because David David's passionate about food. So we want to hear from you. What is your favorite uh, food dish or your favorite restaurant? Like if you – one meal, this is your last meal. What are you doing? What are you getting?
2: So I know Dave loves food, and a lot of times I'll call him and say, I'm headed to Charlotte. Where am I going to eat? Because <laughs> Dave will do his research to make sure he finds good food, and I, I'm the same way as him. I love it. But Dave typically has more information than me. I'll stick on on this episode. I'm going to stick with the Central New York. My favorite um, is lemongrass, mm-hmm. and a lot of people love to go to lemongrass because it's Thai food. They have really great Thai food if you like spicy Thai. But my thing is is the cowboy steak with the mashed potatoes. You get a medium rare cowboy steak, but then you have to ask. So first, ask for Sue as your waitress, because uh, she will make sure that she takes care of you with the cowboy. And then you got to ask for the balsamic, the re- balsamic reduction drizzle, and it changes. I'm tell- I, with our company, we travel all over the nation. I've been brought to some of the best restaurants in the country by huge businesses, multi-billion-dollar companies we partner with, and I have not found a better cowboy steak than right there in Central New York at Lemongrass. The cowboy steak, medium rare, with the. Um, to, to give you an idea, my wife is not a steak fan. Um, isn't a big meat steak fan and she will constantly make me cut the edges off and give it to her because (laughs) it is, it is like through the roof incredible. So if you get the chance to go there, she, and
1: she makes you cut off the edges or you only will give her the edges. (laughs)
2: Well, she doesn't like the raw. The oh, oh, she rear wants part, it cooked she, more. Of course, yeah. the edges have the most flavor. And she yeah. takes the best part. And I've, <laughs> I've already been married twice. I'm not going for three, so I do have to give her the edges and not fight with
1: her. I gotta own up and say I've never had that dish, and now I'm gonna have it this year. Yeah, and actually go. I, I have another foodie friend in Syracuse who does say lemongrass has his favorite steak. Uh, in the city, and so, um, man, uh, thanks for the recommendation. The next, I'm gonna the, get it. I think the Actually. next time
0: Tom, you're in town, the three of us, we got to go. And, oh, uh, that be fun. We'll I,
2: I'm in immediately. We'll get it.
0: <laughs> hey, thanks so much for being on. Uh, we want to encourage you, Tom. will be back on our next episode to talk more about his business. Thanks so much, Tom. We'll see you on the next one. Thank
2: you.